Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. On this episode, well, we've already gone big this year, but you know we love to get small as well. And for me, there's just no greater small beer than a classic British mild. Mild has a long and confusing history tied up with, well, science and taxation and industrialization. So why don't we dig into that history, the style, and just what does it take to make the biggest tasting little beer you've ever had? But first, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Well, hey, thanks for sticking around and listening to our sponsors. Remember, if you uh, if you interact with any of them, let them know that you heard about them here on The Brew Files. It helps. So let's dig into some history here, because I think the important thing to do is to realize that, one, a lot of people find Miles to be somewhat boring, but you know what? To me, Miles are a fascinating piece of beer history, because as we've talked in the past with other pieces of beer terminology, well, brewers are not exactly historians, and they don't exactly have a historical mindset to how they how they decide to call things and how they're designed to do things. They are, after all, business people who are always trying to look to see how they can keep the brewery running and open and making some money. Terms do tend to morph over time. We've talked a little bit about that in the last show with Peter about you know, sparkling ale down in Australia. We've talked about sparkling ale and cream ale up here in the U.S. with both Albany Ale and the cream ale episode that, well, really kind of started this whole program. You know those things all have multiple meanings, and while the word mild is no different, Mild is complicated by the fact that its history goes for hundreds and hundreds of years. But before we dig into the history, I got to give a big shout out to Ron Pattinson, the author of Shut Up About Barkley Perkins blog, 
Ron has been doing a lot of work for a number of years, digging into actual brewery archives and sort of clearing away some of the cobwebs and the myths and the legends. And, you know, really kind of helping us see what the actual practices were and and exposing just how messy beer history is. And, well, really how much the romantic stories that we all know are claptrap. Basic background, mild is most commonly associated with the UK because, let's face it, it's a UK style. Most of the history that we're going to talk about here is going to be from Britain. The word mild as an ale thing really comes into being not as a particular style, but more as a kind of a serving mechanism or a serving description. In the, back in the days, so back in, like, say, the 1700s, you had mild ale, which was designed to be drunk young and a little bit sweet, unaged, so it didn't have the Britannomyces character that we would associate with more aged British beers. You had stale and old ale, which, of course, would have those age characteristics that were very desired. And, you know, the, the things like the Britannomyces, particularly that you see when people are talking about porter, for instance, as a primary character. But mild ale originally really just meant, hey, this is a beer that's meant to be drunk young. Now, in difference to how we think of mild ale today, where we think of mild ale as being a session beer, the original gravities on these mild ales back in the 1700s would have been, you know, somewhere in above 1070, right? And sometimes, uh, sometimes even above uh, 1100. Yeah, these were not, you know, sort of, you know, your sessionable beers. These were the beers that you were drinking to drink to drink. I mean, truthfully, this was the case with most British beer at the time, that the gravities were much higher. We'll get into why they dropped later. Now, during this period in the 1700s, remember, these beers are still being brewed with 100% brown malt, which, of course, would have been kind of a standard malt at the time. Because think about it, before we invented the idea of indirect heating, and particularly indirect heating with a smokeless fuel source like Coke, malt was dried over a wood fire. And it would have had a smoky characteristic. They would have done a lot to control the amount of smoke characteristic, but there would still have been a, an underlying hint of smoke, maybe not like a, a shinklover. But they were also not as precise about how the heat was being applied to the malt. So, you know, remember, malt is, of course, barley that you get wetted, you allow it to start to sprout and grow, and then you heat it and kiln it to dry it and to also kill off the, the sprouting mechanism, which leaves you then with a a grain that's ready to go into the brewery. So originally, these would have been dried over fire. Originally, they would have been dried over a direct fire. And then eventually, they they start to figure out some ways to sort of reduce some of that characteristic. But you still would have had hotter patches, colder patches. You didn't have the sort of precise temperature control and the precise agitation that modern maltsters do. So brown malt would have been kind of your most common thing that you would have had available to you. It was the cheapest malt that you could get your hands on. There was no you know black malt because you couldn't really figure out how to how to roast a malt to that color without burning it. And pale malt was incredibly expensive at the time because originally pale malt would have been just wind-dried malt. You know, that was a thing in Germany, but that was really expensive and really reserved. As we get to the end of the 1700s, indirect heating is discovered, coke fires are discovered, and pale malt starts to become a thing, but pale malt is more expensive. Brewers continued to use brown malt almost exclusively because it was so much cheaper. When we get the switch is actually thanks to science, because you actually have the introduction of the sacrometer, the hydrometer, as we usually call it today. The hydrometer actually allowed brewers to very quickly figure out that even though the pale malt was much more expensive than the brown malt, the actual yield, the amount of sugar that you were getting out of the pale malt far outstripped what you would get out of the brown malt. So that actually when you did the, you know, say cost per points of sugar per pound per pence, it came out to be much cheaper to actually use the pale malt. So almost exclusively and really ra- rather rapidly, I'm talking like about the order of a decade or so in the brewing industry, 
Brewers stopped using brown malt exclusively and switched to using pale malt to provide their base. Very much like what we do today. You know, you think about it. What does every beer recipe that we use today start with? Well, you go pick your base malt, and then you go figure out character and color malts that you're going to add to it. That practice really starts here in around the 1700s, and in fact, to the point where milds at that point, still retaining their gravity, became 100% pale malt beers, or at most they had some amber and some brown malt mixed into them. As we move out of the 1700s and we get into the 1800s, we start to see, again, that shift. You also start to see the you know a little bit of the use of uh, some of the black patent malts out there because they figured out drum roasting so that they could keep the malt moving so it wouldn't burn. But still, for the most part, these milds were all pale. In a lot of ways, think of them as a less hoppy British golden ale in terms of like the modern equivalents. And then as we get into the late 1800s, as we get the rise of industrialization, as we get, you know, Britain trying to maintain its empire and being engaged in a number of wars, taxation starts to come into play. Taxation really had a radical transformative impact on the British brewing scene. We talk nowadays about how the government can use taxes to sort of impose you know, health restriction goals, you know, like the very controversial things like the soda taxes or sin taxes or vice taxes that we put on cigarettes and booze. The Brits really proved this out in the 1800s. And you get certain acts like, you know, the Gladstone Free Mash Ton Act that do a couple of things where they they change the rules in terms of what brewers can actually use in the mash ton before it was, there was actually some restrictions, kind of like the Germans. Some of that based around the idea of purity, but not purity in terms of this is pure beer, but in terms of, hey, we're not trying to poison the public. <laughs> but then you also get the taxation moving away from the amount of barley that you're using to essentially the original gravity coming out of the mash tun. And that, that little shift right there to, to change what the taxation was actually based on ends up being the thing that shoves British beer down in terms of, you know, the alcohol strength. Here in the U.S., most of our taxation is based off the amount of volume that we produce. In Britain, the taxation was also based on the strength of the beer that you're being produced. There was kind of the notion of what a standard beer was. And I think, if I remember correctly, the standard beer gravity was somewhere around like 1060 or so. If you were above that, you paid extra taxes. If you were below that, you paid lower taxes. So suddenly overnight, you start to see all British brewers making a race for below that line so that they can actually, you know, pay less taxes to the government. Uh, very much actually kind of like what uh, cider makers here in the U.S. do, where there's that magical line of 6.9% alcohol that if you're above 6.9, you're an apple wine. If you're below 6.9, you are a cider. Cider is taxed at a much lower rate, which is the reason why if you go and you look at a lot of craft ciders, you'll notice that all of them seem to be like 6.999% ABV because they're below the magical line that they become an ice wine. Taxation, it has an impact. Now, even with the change in gravities, these beers were still mostly pale malt, but also you start to see the increased use of adjuncts, so things like brewer's caramel invert syrups. You also see the rise of different grains being used, including, say, maize, or what we would call corn. And the British become, you know, very much more inclusive in their brewing practices in terms of what they actually will put into the mash tun. So this is the late 1800s. We see this impact. This is when we start to see that shift down in gravities. But now even the shifts down in gravities, you're still talking these milds are still in the 1050s, 1060s area. You know, so they're still staying below that magical reference line, but they're not down to where we think of them. We don't start to really see that shift until we hit the block of World War I and World War II and the Great Depression. What ends up happening is that during World War I, obviously this is total war. So the Brits move really heavily into rationing because they need to conserve resources for the military. And one of the interesting things that they did was 
If you are a U.S. car enthusiast, you'll have heard of CAFE standards, right? CAFE standards are federal government standards for air emission qualities coming out of the a fleet of a car manufacturer. So take Chrysler, right? You know, their overall emission standards and mileage standards have to be below a certain line in order to avoid certain penalties. The British did something very similar where they put in a average gravity for all of a brewery's line that the beers had to be below. So suddenly what you start to see is the the miles at the time, which would have gone under an X sort of designation, so X or XX, they start to really shift, right? They're coming down from that 1055-ish area to under 1030 in some cases. I think there were even some that were down closer to like 1010, but all in, a, in an attempt to sort of pull down the average gravity level of a brewery. You know, that helped with their their taxation. Dark sugars, for the first time, start to really be introduced and used heavily. And I, we don't obviously have the notes as to why, but I believe my speculation is to replace some of the color that you would have gotten from a heavier use of malt. At this point in time, they're still not dark milds, they're, but they're kind of in that amberish range, right? And the other thing that the war also did was it increased the use of different adjuncts. So brewers had to become more practical about what they were using based on what was available. Because you couldn't always get, say flaked barley or unmalted barley. You could get oats, though, sometimes. You could get corn sometimes. You could get wheat sometimes. You could get other things. And you had to be very flexible in terms of what it was that you are going to put in the mash tun. After that First World War, you know, we see, you know, sort of a brief resurgence of gravities. They start to drift back up. They get back up into that 1050 range, and our good friend taxes come back into play, and they drop the gravities really into the range that we know of nowadays, that 1032, 1030, 1038 range at the high end. And this is also when that darkness finally comes into play. So the whole idea of dark mild, that thing that we think the mild as a brown ale, right? You know, the, the weak sister of the brown ale category finally comes into play in that post, you know, World War I, post-depression area. And by the time we hit the 1950s, we are firmly established in what we think of as modern mild. So the 1950s, we have modern mild. So what do we mean by modern mild? As we alluded to earlier, most people kind of have thought of mild as being sort of the weakest version of a brown ale. As we've seen in looking at some of the history, it, that wasn't the case. I mean, mild really did start as a pale beer, only became darker over time. It's kind of the inverse thing that happened to Duval. Duval, when it started life as Victory Ale after World War One, was a dark ale. And it wasn't until the rise of the Pilsners and really until about the mid-1930s that Duval became a pale beer. And, well, so Mild did the exact opposite. It went from being a pale beer for a good portion of its history now to a dark ale for the last, what, 70 years now? Where do we stand in terms of what we mean by Modern Mild? To me, Modern Mild is in those session beer strength original gravities. So you've got 1030 to 1038. Your ABVs tend to be somewhere around 3 to 3.8 high end. Although a lot of people kind of give you a, a raised eyebrow at that end, you know, so a lot of people kind of consider mild to be around a 3.0 to 3.5 type beer. Nowadays, they are mostly brown ales. Some of the interpretations can get to be almost like a very, very dark light porter, right? So a lower strength porter. There was one I was introduced to when it won the great champion beer of Britain, and that was Morehouse's Black Cat Mild. And that one is a very dark beer, and there have been a lot of American interpretations sort of based around that particular version, because actually that has come into the country for a few years, although I usually don't buy it because 
it's bottled and who knows how old it is by the time you pick up the bottle and miles just aren't designed to be aged. Other characteristics, very low hopping. I tend to keep mine around somewhere between 10 to 15 IBUs. Really the stars of the show of mild are malt characters, you know, some nice toffee type characters, some of those bready notes, but also, you know, some of the yeast characters. I like some of the fruit that you get from those British strains. So to me, those are the two things that you're really looking to accentuate. I don't play around a lot with water chemistry. LA water also tends to be fairly good for sort of amberish to brownish beers. And I don't play around with a lot of hops because I don't think that actually will help. We'll talk about one flavor addition that I do actually like, which is going to be unusual a little bit later in the show. Now, to me, you can't talk about mild with also talking about the market challenge. Why don't we see more mild on the market? I mean, for years in Britain, this was one of the most popular drinks until it declined. Today, calling anything a mild, well, it's virtually a death sentence. To me, some of my favorite beers that are out there that have been done by American craft brewers that go on that sort of restrained edge and have called themselves milds, they've all disappeared over time unless they decide to be very clever. Mild is, in the UK, it's always had this association with sort of the working class gentleman's pub and you know flat caps and coal miners in particular because of the regions in which it was popular. Because of that, it's, it's sort of been seen as sort of an old fuddy-duddy type thing, an old man's beer, and it sort of dropped away. Now, Camera, the campaign for real ale, which has been responsible for doing a lot to sort of preserve British traditions, and some people would argue that they're trying to preserve them in amber, which actually is an interesting point. At what point in time do we seize and freeze a beer style? You know, what, when does it mean that it's proper? You know, when, when do we flash freeze this thing in amber and say, that is now mild? Because you could have flash frozen it in 1700, you could have flash frozen it in the 1800s, or you know, pre World War One, or just post World War One, and all of those would be slightly different interpretations of the idea. But I'm kind of going to guess that most of us freeze these ideas of styles into the thing they were when we were first introduced to them. So, you know, I will always think of West Coast IPA and East Coast IPA because that's how I was introduced to IPA. But Camera has done a lot to try and preserve, you know, some of these traditional beer styles. To the point where I know every May they actually have declared it, you know, mild month. They used to have a mild festival that was devoted to nothing but milds. I haven't seen it on the calendar recently, so I don't know what happened to it. They still have it as one of those primary categories in the championship beer of Great Britain, you know, where Morehouse won earlier. But I think, if I remember correctly, according to the notes that I have, it has won the Supreme Champion, you know, aka the best of show of that competition, six times since 1978, which only puts it behind the bitter category in terms of total wins. So obviously the judges have an affinity for mild, or at least a, an affection. Now, to give you an idea of why I think we don't see a lot of mild, I have to go and show an example from my area. Eagle Rock Brewing Company, run by friends of mine, was the first craft brewery to open up in this new wave of craft brewing explosions eight years ago here in LA. Back before they opened, we had a small handful of brew pubs, and that was pretty much it. And they opened up, and one of their core launch lineup beers was Solidarity. And it was billed as mild. And it was very much in that American interpretation, which meant it was slightly bigger. It was, uh, and it was also more like a porter, but a light porter. But it was a great beer. It was one of those beers you could put back a pint of and, and feel good about and keep having another pints. And it was very, very popular with brewers, bar staffs, restaurant workers. Yeah, the people in the hospitality industry, they absolutely loved it. But it fell dead with the public. When it first launched, it did okay. But over time, as Eagle Rock brought other beers online, kegs of solidarity sat around and they couldn't sell it. So eventually they had to discontinue the beer, much to the horror of the fans of the brewery and 
to the brewers themselves because, like I said, they all have affection for it. Yeah, it was it was a beer that uh, that died, and I would say largely on a couple things. One is the name mild. I know I said milds are wild in this show title, but milds still mean mild, and to a lot of people, uh, particularly in sort of the hurly burly attitude of you know how craft brew drinkers are, you know, give me that more bitterness, give me that more strength. Mild doesn't ex- exactly elicit a lot of excitement. The other thing, of course, is a lot of people get sort of value conscious. So, you know, they look at it and they go, why do I want to spend, you know, just about as much money for a 3.5% beer as I can for a 7% IPA? And thinking, well, you know, this has less ingredients and it should be cheaper. Well, the ingredients are a very low portion of a brewer's cost when they're making their beer. So, yeah, it, it comes in, I think, also there's a little bit of a value proposition. I want more booze and for, um, I want more bang for my buck. And that's another reason why Mild loses out. One of the things I did was, you know, Lou Bryson has been running uh, the Session Beer Day project for a few years now. He's told me that he thinks that Session Beer is now actually won, so there won't be a Session Beer Day this year, at least officially. But Lou, I asked him, you know, so what the heck should brewers be doing? Because that's the big conundrum, right? You know, how do you get around that name mild? How do you get people to not freak out and run away from a beer just because you call it a mild? And Lou pointed out that one of his favorite beers is a mild. And so his strategy is actually, to quote him, sidestep it entirely. Yards Brawler, their second best-selling beer, is a 4.1% dark mild. Again, slightly out of range for, you know, proper mild, but whatever. Mild appears nowhere on the label. It's called a pugilist-style ale. I have to agree with uh, Lou. I think there's probably something there. I wrote about Solidarity for Beer Advocate a few years back when they retired it, and... I, I joked in, in there, and I, I, I don't know if it's that much of a joke, that they should have just called it an interestingly potable ale, or IPA for short, and maybe it would have sold more. Now, here's the thing. Looking back at that thing about, you know, when do we freeze a beer style? When, when does it become frozen in amber, and that is now the beer style? I think we can all look and we can see examples of how this still plays around today. I mean, you can look at the IPA thing, for instance. Like I said, when when I first started drinking craft beer, there was very distinctive East Coast versus West Coast appearance. Now that's mostly disappeared. And then you got the shift into, you know, sort of real West Coast IPA where things became all pale malt, no caramel, and as much bitterness as you could. And then that pulled back. And now also we have the rise of New England IPA, right? So IPA itself is still morphing. And beers are still morphing. That's what they do over time. So when do we freeze this thing in in amber? Obviously, I think mild is sort of now encapsulated around that 1950s picture that we still see today. Who knows if we'll see further innovation in the style. But one of the things that you can do if you're looking at mild and you don't really want to be, you know, sort of trapped by that modern definition, look back at some of the old definitions. There's a great example from the Beacon Hotel over in the UK called Sarah Hughes Ruby Mild, which comes in at around 6%. So it's not quite the big brawler of those 1700s, early 1800s miles, but it is a definite throwback. And, you know, it is rich. It is wonderful. And, you know, depending upon the batch that you get, I mean, it can be one of the best beers I think I've ever had. It's inspired other examples. So uh, Magnolia Brewing Company in San Francisco, they have one that's kind of their homage, uh, the Sarah's Ruby Mild, which they've actually reformulated to be down in sort of the more modern range of about 3.9%. I remember years ago, I believe it used to be up in the, around the six, six and a half range, just like the Sarah Hughes. And even that, I mean, it's a great beer. Of course, you can also go to Magnolia. You can actually get it on a beer engine, which is the proper way to have it. And then, yeah, an, an old one. Yeah, yeah, really old one. If you remember uh, Stone Brewing Company, before Mitch Steele had become the head brewer there, 
their head brewer was a guy named Lee Chase. And when they started in on the whole anniversary series, they had a, a beer for a little while that was uh, Lee's Mild. And, of course, thinking about Stone and thinking about them having a Mild it would sort of make you scratch your head. One of their anniversary beers, and it might have been the second anniversary beer, was Lee's Imperial Mild. And, of course, you know, kind of the, the joke being, you know, hey, what about, what is this, an Imperial Mild? Well, remember what we said earlier in the show, you know, Mild only really used to be a, a designation of whether or not it was meant to be drunk young. And so Lee's Imperial Mild was a nice big beer. I think it was around 8%. But I asked uh, Greg Cook about it one time. I said, hey, you know, I really like that beer. Are you guys ever going to brew it again? He said, hell no. Who knows? Lee is still in the brewing industry, so maybe Lee will bring it back in uh, sort of stealth form. If you really wanted to go old school and kind of go for a sort of throwback mild, you know, one of those ones that's up around 1100, I would say, you know, you couldn't go wrong with starting with my, you know, Queen's Diamonds, probably lower the hopping in it a little bit. Uh, again, that's an 1100 beer, but that's right in that range of what that would have been. And it's all pale malt. Again, that, that would kind of have been a throwback mild. You could also take the notion that you see nowadays of some of these British golden nails, make sure you get one that's in like that six to 7% range. And probably also drop the hopping back again a little bit because again these beers were still even in that even in that old school form they were still meant to be drunk young and they were still meant to be drunk a little bit sweet so you wouldn't want to have you know a big hop burst character to it we're going to assume that you're going to have the keys to bring a good modern mild because after all we all need something mild to have on tap all summer I'm not kidding guys I literally have at home almost all the time I will have a mild of some variety are on tap, and I will also probably have a table saison, particularly during the summer, because I don't want a big heavy beer during the summer, and I'm not a Pilsner guy. Here's how I go about brewing a good modern mild. If you have comments or disagreements and you want to tell me I'm wrong, feel free. If you have mild recipes of your own that you that you like or strategies that you have, let me know. We'll, we'll update the notes. Okay, so the first key, remember before I said that to me, uh, mild is all about that, that malt flavor. I want some of those toffee, I want some of those bready notes. So the key is you gotta start with a good, good base malt. So a splurge. Don't go for your domestic two row. You're talking a relatively small amount of grain. So splurge. Get your Maris Otters out. Get your Golden Promise. If you wanna stay domestic, Brees has their Ashburn Mild Malt. Mild Malt used to be a thing as well. And essentially it's a more toasted malt, right? So the, so for instance, the Brees mild malt, you know, say Brees's pale malt will come in and like, say around a three Lovabond. The Brees mild malt comes in a 5.3 SRM or Lovabond. So it's a little bit darker. It's going to be a little bit more toasted. It's going to have a little more oomph behind it. And that's the whole idea that they're going to do there. So it is, it is definitely a more malty malt. And to me, that's something that you want here. So that's the reason why I go for a Maris Otter or Golden Promise or the Breeze Mild Malt. I could also see doing a mild with like a 100% Munich. I know a lot of people love to do that for like, say, an IPA that has a little bit more character to it in the malt body. So I could totally see doing doing a Munich malt there. The reason why I emphasize this is, remember, you're not going to be using a lot of malt here. Most of my mild recipes come in and around, say, you know, five to six and a half pounds of base malt. So you want whatever it is that you're going to be using to have as much character as possible to provide you with a solid foundation. For any of my dark milds, I like to use debittered chocolate malts. So you'll see sometimes roasted barley, you'll see cho uh, other chocolate malts. Uh, I tend to actually like to use, say, the German carafa malts that are debittered. There are a couple of other debittered chocolate malts that are out there. 
So Wireman Carafa, though, is pretty easily available. Uh, either use two or three. Make sure it's the debittered special, because the reason I like to use those is, again, one of the flavors I want out of a mild is a little bit of that toffee note, but I don't want it to be super sweet. And Carafa and the other debittered chocolates give that toffee while also giving color. Another good choice, if you want to stay strictly British, would be the Simpsons Pale Chocolate. I actually really like that as a character. I don't tend to like to use the darker chocolates with all the husk material and everything else or the roasted barleys because I find it really hard, particularly at homebrew volume levels, to ride that magic line of having enough malt in there to give the color without also giving it an acridness. And really for this beer, I want to avoid that acridness at all cost. For my pale milds, I tend to actually just use base malt plus a medium crystal, something like a Simpsons uh, medium, uh, you know, basically a crystal 55, crystal 60, and use that for a little extra character just because I think they don't need a lot a lot of boost, but they do need something because just the pale malt, I think, is a little too thin and boring. Other malts, it's traditional, particularly if you look at old school British recipes, to see amber malts or brown malts. We don't tend to see here in the States a lot of amber malt. We do tend to see brown malt. However, I'm a bit gun-shy about most brown malts because I've done the the stupid thing where not realizing that brown malt in the past is different than brown malt of today. I've done beers with, say, a third brown malt. And boy, was that a terrible idea. So I'm always a little gun-shy. If you're going to use brown malt, I would recommend starting you know, at a more reasonable level, say like a half pound, and work up to see what it is that you like. And then, of course... We have adjuncts. Remember I told you back in the late 1800s with the sort of the changes up to the taxations and then both the world wars sort of enforcing an attitude of use what you got. The British are arguably second only to the Belgians in terms of their their use of adjuncts. They don't quite have the purity levels that the Germans do in terms of only barley or wheat. They will use a lot of different things. So a lot of British recipes and a lot of recipes inspired by the British, you'll see them using Invert syrups, the brew are called brewers invert syrups, which have actually different color ranges, basically from a one to a four. The four is incredibly dark, just like the Belgian candy syrups. You'll also see them use brewers caramel, which despite the name is not actually a sweetener. It is a, essentially a colorant. And you can find some of that if you're like in Australia, they call it the Parisian essence, which Peter references all the time in bronze brews. But you can also find uh, brewers caramel or actually Sorry, gravy caramel, a browning agent, which doesn't really have a flavor, and you can use that if you want. Other things, of course, is also dark sugars. My mild recipes in the past have also sometimes used, say, like a really nice British dark brown sugar, something with molasses in it, like a Billington's that used to be available all the time at my Trader Joe's. You can find that also on Amazon. And corn, oats, the sky's the limit, really. Almost anything can actually end up in a British mash tun. Like I said, the British are really only second to the Belgians in terms of their, you know, carefree attitude about what's actually in the mash done. They have never quite adopted the Belgian attitude towards laissez-faireness in the brew kettle in terms of what goes in there. And if you want to know how to make your own invert syrup, invert syrup is different than, say, sugar. And it's a little bit, little bit different because it requires the whole chemical process. It's a, effectively, it's flipping you know, part of the sucrose molecule around. And what it does is it prevents crystallization, right? So it becomes just a syrup. If you look online for making your own invert syrup, you'll actually find some instructions. Chris England worked on some. And there's a couple things that you need, but essentially it boils down to sugar, water, uh, some lactic acid, and, you know, a couple of other ingredients and a nice thermometer. The other one that they also play around with is actually approximating. So instead of actually having to cook down your own invert syrup, you can just use, you know, say, 
a regular invert syrup, something, you know, even pale, like a, a Lyle's Golden, and then add molasses to it in order to actually get it to the appropriate levels of darkness. Uh, in a pinch, yes, you could also use the Belgian candy syrups. They will give a slightly different character, though. Another key to doing a good modern mild, and this one's going to be really hard for you homebrewers and American craft brewers out there, don't overdo it. Don't go big. I see this with so many recipes where their starting gravities are in the 1045 to 1050 range. And if you're trying to make that modern mild, that classical, you know, sort of British mild, that's a little too big, buddy. I also see too many hops. Um, so many of the mild recipes I see out there on, on homebrew forums, you know, they're using like an ounce of hops in a mild. Most of my milds use somewhere closer to about a third of an ounce for the whole batch. Uh, and I'm seeing uh, mild recipes out there with, you know, like say an ounce of finishing hops. If that's to your taste, bully, go for it. That's wonderful. But it's not going to be in that sort of classical range of a British mild. The other thing I also see is a lot of use of, say, classical UK varieties, so a lot of Fuggles and Goldings. I tend to find Fuggles and Goldings boring. I don't quite have a Denny's complete anathema to the to the hops because he thinks they taste like dirt. But I do tend to use some of the more modern varieties like Target and Challenger Progress. And there are a lot of other new ones that, are, that should be coming out soon or that are they're starting to creep into the market. I find it a little more fun to play with, even though, again, the hops aren't like the big selling point of the style. For yeast, choose your favorite British strain that enhances the maltiness. I've done some American-style milds that use, say, you know, USO5 or Y-Yeast 1056. But for a truly classic British mild, I think you need some of that British fruity yeast character in there. For me, I look at, like, say, uh, Y-Yeast 1275 Thames Valley, the WLP... 022 White Labs uh, Essex Ale strain, which is unfortunately a vault strain. Which, by the way, go order it on the vault. They only had like 160 uh, orders left in order to propagate it. And it's one of my favorites. It really makes a nice mild. Actually, it really makes nice British beers in general. I also use things like London 3, which now everybody seems to use for IPAs. I, I really like those because I like the fruitiness that you get. I don't want it to be a fruit bomb, so again, control your temperatures. Uh, I still perform my usual sort of fermentation profile here, you know, pitch a little bit lower than fermentation temperature so get say get the beer down to around 63 65 pitch and then allow it to ferment up to about 68 i do also like with my british strains to do open ferments so i think you get a better character out of them that way choose a good strain that's not going to dry the beer out aggressively and one that can give an interesting nose character to kind of give you something else to play off of other than just the malt characters Why don't we just cover real quick a couple of recipes. We'll also include these on the website so you can take a look at them. These are three examples of mild that I do all the time that I've really, really loved over the years. First one is my classic mild, the CDJK mild, which is named after the four people who worked on it. Cullen, Drew, Jim, and Kent. It comes in at a whopping 1037, a 16 SRM, 13 IBUs, and has a 60-minute boil. And for five and a half gallons, it's six and three quarters pounds of Maris Otter a half a pound of flaked oats, a quarter of a pound of a crystal 150, and then two ounces of carafa 2, and two ounces of roasted barley. Trying to balance out those roast characters without overpowering the beer. Mash, real simple, single infusion, 60 minutes, 152 for, you know, just to hold and get through. You could probably get away with doing less time. I think a mild would actually be a perfect place to do a speed brew. Hops, quarter ounce of target at 10.6 alpha acid for 60 minutes. And an eighth of an ounce of Challenger at 30 minutes. And that's it. 
And then the yeast strains, as I said before, use like a 1275 from Y yeast. Use the White Labs 22 Essex Ale. And yeah, in a pinch, you could use the California Complex or use the London 3 1318. Now, that's the dark mild. I have a pale mild that I call my pale oat mild. And again, same thing, about 1038, 6.7 SRM as opposed to 15, so very pale. 10 IBUs. Again, very uh, very different than what we're used to. This one has a 90-minute boil because I wanted to get a little bit of that extra kettle character. But it's 6 pounds of Maris Otter, 2 pounds of Thomas Fawcett's malted oats. You can find new malted oats nowadays, but uh, I really like those Fawcett malted oats. And then a half a pound of a Simpsons Medium Crystal, which is about a 55L. I really like the Simpsons Medium Crystal because I think it gives a good balance of characters. Mash again for 60 minutes at 152. And this time the, the hop schedule is actually inverted. It's 0.13 ounces or an eighth of an ounce of Target at 11% alpha acid for 60 minutes. And then a quarter ounce of Challenger for 30 minutes. Same sort of yeast. But again, the difference is now, you know, that first one's a dark mild, which is, you know, kind of what I think a lot of us think of. And it's a little bit on the darker edge. If you wanted to knock it back a little bit, I would probably take out the roasted barley. But again, that's going to be a good chewy dark beer with a little bit of roast character to it. The, this one, the pale oat mild, is all about that silkiness of the oats and the richness of the Maris Otter and allowing that sort of playback and, and get down your throat really quickly. Not as boring as, say, like a brew pub blonde or an American-style Kolsch. And it's not that crisp. It's got those ale characters. It's got a little bit of meatiness to it. But man, does it go down really quick. And then finally... Just to show that you can play around with some flavors, this one's a little atypical for me because I'm not usually a big fan of this character, but a few years back, Brees also introduced a Cherrywood smoked malt. It actually was a replacement for a smoked malt that was being done by hand at a brew shop up in Sacramento, but the, the Brees Cherrywood uh, malt came out, and I think it's a pretty good substitute. It's a relatively lightly smoked malt, so it's not going to be like your peat smoked where you have to really keep a judicious hand with it. But even still, since this is mild, I don't like to use a lot of it. But for my Cherrywood malt beer, which is, again, five and a half gallons, 14.5 SRM, 10 IBUs, 90 minute boil. It's four and three quarters Maris Otter, two and a half pounds of the Breeze Cherrywood malt. If you want to use less, just take whatever it is that you're taking out of the Cherrywood malt and put it into the Maris Otter. Three quarters of a pound of Thomas Fawcett's Crystal 60, or you can, again, you could use the Simpsons Medium Crystal here. 0.75 is Munich to give that little bit of breadiness, a little bit of oomph to the body. And then 0.25 pounds of Carafa 2 Special. Mash at 150 degrees for 60 minutes. And then just one hop addition, 0.35 ounces of Challenger at 7.5% for 60 minutes. And again, use the same sort of yeast ferment. Keep cool. Now for me, when I do my ferments, I run my ferments at the lower end of the spectrum. So pitch down at 63, 64, 65. Keep the beer fermenting at, say, 66, 67. And then they only really need a couple of days. I've turned miles around in as quick as seven days. So, you know, just watch the croissant go up, watch the croissant come down, transfer, get into your keg. You don't need to do a secondary with these. If you want to do a cold crash, do the cold crash while you're in primary. You're not going to run into huge issues here. Make sure that you do give the yeast enough time to clean up any diastole. If you choose a diastole producing strain like a ringwood, get your beer into your kegs. And here's the final piece of the trick that I think that you need to think about when you're doing a mild. Normally, when we're doing our, our American beers, we tend to go two and a half, three volumes of CO2. You want this to be closer to, say, 1.75 to 2. I usually do my burst method of carbonation, where I shake the keg at the appropriate keg pressure, plus one PSI, for 10 minutes and let it go. You'll find that when you actually look at your calculators, if you have these beers, say, at near lagering temperatures or just cold storage temperatures, say, 35 degrees Fahrenheit, 
that that almost means I think it's like about your PSI setting on your regulator is like nine. So it's it's virtually nothing. But the reason is you want the beer to be relatively low carb. You don't want it to be gassy because the carbonation will actually undercut the body. And if it undercuts the body, you're going to do yourself a disservice. So here, I think you really want to have an opportunity to have that beer get sort of more time to envelop your palate. You know, allow that malt to really sit on your tongue and then let the hops do the work to actually clear everything off. And just enough carbonation to kind of keep things prickly, keep things a little bright and keep things moving along. Now, if you have the opportunity, go find a local brewery, see if they're producing a mild. Uh, as Lou pointed out, he's got one in, in his area of the woods from Yards. I have one here. Actually, we have two here in LA that I really like. One from McLeod's and then also one from Yorkshire Square Brewing Company that they call The Drift. And oddly enough, both created by the same brewer. But again, if you have a proper mild, here's what you get. You get the opportunity to have a beer. You get the opportunity to have a couple of beers. You get to have an opportunity to have beer in a big old dimple mug like I'm drinking right out of right now. You get to have all the flavor experiences of a beer. You get to have that enjoyment. You get to have the, the richness of the malt. You get to have a chance to talk with your friends. And you get to have a chance to talk to your friends over multiple pints of beers without falling over. Miles are a perfect brew beer. Miles are a perfect just day beer. Do yourself a favor. If you haven't had the chance to explore mild, take the time. Make yourself a mild. And if you want to be really clever about it, make yourself two milds. Make yourself one mild at the sort of modern strength. And then go use that yeast cake that you're producing and go make an old school throwback to mild or just make a barley wine and get that ready to go for winter. There you go. Well, thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this particular show. Hopefully we convinced you that mild isn't boring and can be a welcome addition to your brew lineup. Since it's hard to find commercially here in the States, well, really just about everywhere nowadays, it's up to us to brew the mild of our dreams. So go out, grab your mash tuns, fire up the kettles, and make a beer you can turn around in just a few days and really, truly love. I'm not kidding, folks. I love mild. I keep it on tap. You should, too. It's going to be a great addition. So let us know if you're going to actually go and make a mild and what, what kind of things that you'd want to see with a mild and what new interesting twist you're going to put on it. So now remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and on just about every homebrewing forum out there. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click on the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Habitat for Humanity, helping to cure homelessness one house at a time. So until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files.